Hello and welcome to What the Lux with me, Fred Moore. And me, Anand Sharma. Together we lead Matter of Form, brand and experience design consultancy headquarters in London. And this is a podcast that calls time on tired ideas of luxury. And alongside industry luminaries and thought leaders, we explore what truly defines category-leading products and experiences. Ming Lampson is one of the most exciting and preeminent jewellers in the UK and beyond. And when it comes to the definition of a category leader, Ming is it. She embodies a central truth that great luxury businesses are a natural consequence of a passion and deep fascination with the subject matter and the art form, and not the other way around. Ming is a trained goldsmith, gemologist and diamond specialist who 20 years ago cut her teeth sorting and grading coloured stones with the gem dealers and local goldsmiths of Jaipur. She has since gone on to build a highly successful private jewellery business in London's Notting Hill. She contrasts great artistry with a deep and almost scientific rigour for her craft. There is an exclusivity and a mystique, yet a genuine personal warmth and openness, as many of her clients would attest. But most importantly, Ming is uncompromising. Uncompromising in that her standards are set supremely high, in that she will pick and choose only the finest materials, and in that she will say no and is never tempted to dilute the joy and purity of what she does. Ming, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for your kind words. I think I am a bit uncompromising. I think it's quite a true introduction. (laughs) Fair enough. Now, tell us, Ming, where are you today? I'm speaking from home because my desk at work is very much in amongst many workbenches and the noise would be so extreme. There'd be no way we could record it. I like to work right next to workbenches. I used to work on the workbench and I don't anymore, but I like to be touching distance so that I can sort of be very part of what's going on in every pro sort of section of the making. Um, I guess it's the control freak in me, but it's also the enjoyment of the craft. Yeah. And, and um, I think it's going to come across quite how much you enjoy the craft in this conversation. But firstly, just as an opening question, because I think in jewellery, um, this is a good one. When you hand over your final piece of jewellery to the client, how do you want them to feel? I guess I want them to not be able to stop smiling. You know, you make a piece of jewellery for somebody to make them smile, for them to have a kind of full heart and to feel like they've got a piece of armour against the world. What you want more than anything else is that they kind of aren't overthinking it, that they just, just, they cannot not smile when they look at it because that's the association of the piece. The piece is symbolic to them for whatever reason they've had it made. And I really believe there shouldn't be rules in jewellery. You shouldn't have to wear an engagement ring. You shouldn't have to wear any piece of jewellery. It should only be because you want to wear it. And when you look down at it, it is associates with something that makes you smile it's your treasure wonderful and so how did this all start tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the jewelry industry I mean I I don't have any sort of family connections to to making jewelry and I don't have anybody you know friends who were jewelers or jewelry designers I just had none of that on my radar when I always made stuff as a child I, I was one of those kids that would make, you know, houses out of pieces of paper and marbling and any bit of clay. I was a kind of craft fantastic. You know, I loved anything kind of making. So if it wasn't on my radar and as a teenager, I was given a bag of gemstone beads by a friend that I'd lent some money to. And I was very dismissive of that. I was like, I don't want the beads. I just want the money back. And he was like, this is what I've got. 
And it led me to making necklaces, in which I sold in. I was living in Galway at the time, and I sold these necklaces in the market. And at the time, I thought that they were just so fantastic, you know, because they sold really, really well. And I felt like the design must be amazing. But actually, looking back, the beads were really good quality. And I'd sort of price it according to my time that it took to string them up. Um, and I was so sort of proud of myself with how well they sold. But actually, you know, £10 for amazing amber and lapis lazuli necklace was really not that much but they sold well and I decided I wanted to go and get some more beads and I knew he'd got them in India and I was really fascinated with the country so I traveled to Jaipur in order to buy more beads and when I was there the whole kind of concept of buying beads to make necklaces was absolutely dropped instantly because I became so transfixed by actual gemstones and the world of jewelry over there where at that time in the early 90s, so many of the gemstones of the world were cut. And I ended up staying more than two years, coming back to kind of renew my visa, but I ended up staying for years to just sort stones for different dealers. And I'd sit down and I'd say, I'll, I'll, I'll be with you for the entire day and I'll just grade your amethyst for the entire day. Or I'd set myself a task to find one small, small moonstone and I'd look through thousands I realized I have quite a visual memory and I can really pick up a nuance of color and remember it. And it gave me an amazing grounding. And, and I found a guy that I said, can I sit next to you on the side of the road? And if, if I pay you to make a piece of jewelry for me, will you teach me to make it? And we, it was very informal. It wasn't like going over there and setting up an apprenticeship or anything like that. It was just an exploration of something that I just got deeper and deeper into and postponed going to university and everything. And then after a couple of years, I realized that actually I needed to expand how it was made because we'd sit on the floor and we'd use a kind of kerosene lamp and a blow pipe to solder. And it was amazing. But I realized that there was more to learn. So then I went to university in England to study the craft of jewelry. And what you've said so far, there's signs of the early businesswoman selling necklaces to your friends. There's signs of your absolute passion for the craft and the ability to, to dedicate yourself to it. Would I also say that there's something of the rebel in you? I mean, I, I don't think, you know, spending two years in Jaipur and traveling around Asia doing this, is there the spirit of that within you? I, I've always wanted to do my own thing. I'd say hard headed <laughs> and I think there is definitely, you know, if a rebel, it could be defined as somebody who questions why traditions or rules are in place, then for sure. And that definitely is within, you know, the pieces that I design. I really kind of, if people come in and say, you know, I want a, a diamond engagement ring, I'd say, why? You know, it's fine if you want to wear it all day, every day, you never want to take it off. You don't want the stone to ever scratch. You know, there's reasons. If that's the reason you want one, that's fine. But if you want a diamond engagement ring because everybody's got a diamond engagement ring, then that's not a reason to wear a diamond engagement ring. And might you send them out the door? No, I try. <laughs> I mean, I've been known to send people out the door, but, but really, hopefully in a kind way, because they're asking me for something that they can buy, not elsewhere. And therefore, there's no point in having it handmade for them. But no, I just... I think it's about making people realize that there's other options. You know, a lot of the time people say to me, oh, I, you know, I'd love to have a piece of jewelry made, but I don't want to know what I want. And you're like, well, you can't know what you want because you don't know what's possible in the craft. If you did know what you want, then it's something you've seen before. And so therefore, there's no point having that made. So Ming, you, you specialize in producing this 
one-of-a-kind bespoke jewellery um, as a private jeweller. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that entails uh, and the process? I think that the the key statement would be one-of-a-kind jewellery. I have a limited range of editions where something is just made of gold, and so therefore there are a few of them. But on the whole, anything with a gemstone I, is one-of-a-kind. And for me, that's the main sort of takeaway from what you say is that the idea that, that it's unique, that it's a piece of treasure, that it honours the gemstone that's within it. And I think that jewellery holds stories. So if you are walking around with a ring that sort of six people in your office or your friends have the same, it's not individual to you and your story. If I said to you, Fred, oh, Fred, I really like, you know, the pendant that you're wearing or your ring, you'd say to me, oh, I bought it because of this or that, or it was given to me. You know, you don't just say, oh, thanks. You know, you try it on anybody and you talk to them just out of the blue, say, oh, I really like that. They will give you the story, but they don't do that with their coat or their picture or their... And I think it's because it's against your skin and it becomes sort of almost in a hippie way part of your soul and that story is what I like yeah you, you also I've heard you say it, it's like armor as well which I think is a really interesting interpretation of what jewelry is tell us about that yeah I think you know because you can look down at it or touch it on you you can kind of have a, a, a mental association with it I guess part of it goes back to almost when I was in Jaipur and I first ever learning in, in India, it's it's never really just an accessory to an outfit. For them, there's a reverence towards gold and towards gemstones that goes back thousands of years. And it's almost, you know, it's in the Vedic scriptures, it's, it's Ayurvedic. They, they, they kind of tie different gemstones to different planets and you wear them in order to balance yourself. And I think a lot of that has seeped into me, that way of thinking whereby you can wear certain stones to feel a certain way or to have a certain association. If you make a, yeah, a piece of jewellery for your girlfriend or your wife or your family member, they look at that piece of jewellery and they think of you. And that is what I mean about armour for the world. It can be that it's reassuring or a memory of somebody or a, a feeling. And you love to connect the stone and the wearer, that's evident in what you've just said. So it'd be interesting to hear how you unveil the story behind your client and clients and, and connect that to the piece and, and then how you find the inspiration for those pieces in that context to really push the boundaries of design. That's something we're fascinated at by Matriform is, is pushing design. Yes, I think the main way of kind of pushing the design is to get away from it being the jewel, to go to the, the root of the person. So to think about maybe as simple as saying colour, strip away all thoughts of it being a jewel, being a, a finished piece, and trying to say why somebody responds to a certain colour or why somebody responds to a certain metal and not even where you're going to wear it, to kind of try and break down from any perceived notion about what somebody's walking in or, or wanting to do and just see where they almost physically respond. So I always like the experience of making a jewel to be really, really good because then I think when you look at the final jewel, that experience will be in the memory. And it may be just kind of for me, like my greatest experience is looking at gemstones because they're so beautiful and so exciting to look at. So it could be that I start with that and you're laying out stones in front of somebody and seeing which they physically respond to. Sometimes people can mentally respond, but I'm actually not really listening to what they say about the stones. I'm looking at them. They can't hide 
if one makes them smile or their eyes light up. They can't hide it. And so that's what I'm looking for, like which one they have a response to. And once you have a response to a certain stone, then it's about trying to find. So if you're responding to a certain shade of blue or a certain color of sapphire, sapphire come in every color, then it's about in the crystal of that stone, in the formation of it, which is the best cut for that stone rather than being somebody coming in saying I like square cut you're trying to say okay if if you're responding to an emerald it can be cut as round it can be cut as an oval but it would the crystal being an hexagonal crystal structure cuts better as an octagon or an emerald cut so therefore you're kind of saying okay if we start with that process because that's we're going to get the best stone at the best price and that be the basis of the design rather than somebody walking in and going I want a diamond that's so good what you say because you can have the and, and of course the finest craft in the world but if there's not the human experience before during and after um, that adds so much to the value and the emotion attributed to that piece that you are actually taking them through that journey exactly and I really think that with most design you know to be quite successful you can you're trying to kind of chip away whether it's anything in the world you're kind of trying to take it down to its early levels the most the necessary elements and build on that from a personal perspective yeah and then Ming did you um I'd be interested to know did you sort of consciously recognize a gap in the jewelry sector Uh, you know did you position Ming to to fill that gap or or do you just do what you love doing and build a business that way I probably would have been way more successful if I sort of thought about things in a much more business head, but I can't. I have to true to my own explorations of design. And obviously, you need to look after your workforce and make sure that things work on a financial level. And you need, I'm always very conscious of the client, you know, people save up in order to make something and you have to be very price conscious. But at the same time, you just have to be true to what you're doing. And so I've never really worried about what anybody else is doing i'm not i'm not really making jewelry you know to be a big jeweler or to have a big business i'm making jewelry because i really want to try whatever the next expiration is or just work with a better gemstone or see another stone or try another design and that's been always my motivating force and i've never really thought about it in terms of a business it's more about the next design and sometimes to that's to my detriment and sometimes that's an advantage but I can't really change that. Yeah, I, I think you're being modest because you are extremely successful. But um, I, you, you know, you define success firstly yourself internally, but secondly over the lifetime of a business. And I think the attributes of Ming are, are what makes a truly successful business over a lifetime. Um, of course, there are those who, who sell out after five years or take investment and expand and have loads of shops, but um, uh, not many of those succeed in the sort of consciousness or succeed in the long term. I think if you're true to what you're doing, if you're authentic about what you're trying to create, that shines through and people are drawn to that. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'll say to people, it doesn't, you know, you're making a piece, not, not just to have a piece of jewellery, you're making it because you really, really want it. And, you know, if, if I'm very conscious for them about my advice is always to go for the best stone you can get, it doesn't have to be the biggest because then over the years, you always own the best stone. It doesn't matter if in future generations, designs change. I'm a really big one for recycling jewellery. I think jewellery can be you know, the most sustainable, interesting industry if we improve mining, because all the gold we use is recycled 
all stones can be recycled, everything can be remade. It doesn't, going back to kind of very famous jewels of the past, you see stones coming out of Maharaja pieces that then appear in Cartier pieces, that then appear in modern designers pieces. And that's amazing. And if you get a really good stone, that's the most important thing. And it's, it's that sort of authenticity to design that then also, I think, shines through and people are drawn to. Yeah, it's actually, you've touched on the sustainability angle and um, talk to us about that in the context of the industry, but also, I guess, specifically diamonds. You know, we know that the diamond trade can be extremely unethical, but how do you ensure your jewels are from really ethical and fair sources? And what's your take on the industry as a whole in terms of sustainability? I mean, it's a huge subject, sustainability, and it's a very complicated one. I openly say to everybody, I can't 100% ensure that all my jewels are ethical or sustainable. I cannot. Without visiting every mine that I deal with, I can't. What I want every piece to have an amazing feeling about it. And we can only have an amazing feeling if the stones are mined in a well, in a good way, if the gold is recycled, or if, you know, at every stage, we're asking for the best practice. But above all, we can't ever claim that we are doing any everything ethically and sustainable. However, you know, there is real intent in the industry. On the whole, everybody wants people to be well treated. You know, that I wouldn't say absolutely everybody, but, you know, the aim is to have well-mined good stones. So it's about trying to find out where they're mined, trying to find out the, the practices at the mines. There's some um, that are way better than others. Um, there's certain companies. The hardest thing, I think, in, in the jewellery industry is traditionally where stones are cut is very different from where they're mined. And so something like sapphires, coloured stones is much easier because you can tell from the inclusions where the mine is. With diamonds, they're pure carbon. You can That's the, one of the complicated things is you can't tell where they're coming from. There are very terrible diamond mines and there are really fantastic ones. Botswana is a real example of diamonds doing very good for a community and for a country and being well run and being very positive impact. But at the moment, it's very, it is still very difficult to tell exactly where diamonds from because they go to a clearinghouse, they're cut in one country, they're sorted in another country. The biggest impact would be to if we could somehow improve split where diamonds are cut and to have them cut where they're mined and then know where they're sourced entirely. There is a lot, a lot of people trying to make jewellery far more responsible it's not there yet but i think um it's it's good to point that out that not all mining is bad it's, it's nothing's black and white i think if you just read certain things you just mining is just written off as a whole as terrible and it's lovely to hear an example in botswana of where it's done properly but also i suppose you know you really are creating very few pieces that should last a lifetime and then someone else's lifetime and so you're not about mass consumption at all which i think points to um, a sustainable industry and product. Yes, I, I really believe in, in few pieces. Um, and I mean, to the extent that I would say to a client, no, not this year, don't make something this year. You know, she's got a few pieces. I really think people should own or save up for very, very few really significant pieces rather than own lots. And it's one of the kind of guiding forces for me for making one of a kind that, that 
we can only make very few in the workshop. I don't ever want to make loads. I don't want to make anything that just sits in a drawer and is never worn or somebody just wears for one season and then, you know, fine jewellery is not about fashion. It's not about trends. It's about treasure. And you don't, you shouldn't have a lot of it. You should just have it well made. And so I do make very few pieces and I do try to make sure that, you know, nothing's just, there's no waste in it. There's no waste in the workshop. There's not pieces just bought for the sake of it. It's all very small scale. Ming, just going back to your to your customers, you'd never ever give away who actually are your customers. I really want to ask. Um, I suspect no, there's um, Sorry. quite a few well-known people in there. But who do you attract? Who's your typical, what, what kind of demographics? How do you promote yourself? Is it word of mouth? How do they know about you? Everything is word of mouth up to now because my workshop is below my shop, which is on a back street in Notting Hill. It's not something that people kind of walk past. And although you don't need to make an appointment to come in, there is a buzzer on the door so you have to have a sort of sense of bravery so that that has been word of mouth but I have started to notice as my designs and my collections have become a little bit more well known or been featured in exhibitions in auction houses and things that I've started to have people travel to just say I really am interested in Mm. your design and I want to see it for the sake of design that aren't from word of mouth that are finding it through followers of the craft let's say people who are actively interested in design have started to kind of try and seek me out. I bet. And and does, um, I think also in, in businesses like yours, from from the outside, you prob- we probably, if you don't think about it too hard, you have a view, a very sort of um, uh, singular view of your type of cost customer, probably like hugely wealthy of a certain sort of a banker or whatever. But I bet actually, as I get to understand businesses like yours more, it's very surprising the breadth and range of people who buy from you. Is that true? Yes, because you have real people who are really interested in the art form or you have stone obsessives. You know, people are attracted to my desire to not have rules about jewellery and to try and shake up who wears jewellery and why. It's a wide demographic and I'm, I'm lucky. My clients are loyal. So they kind of over the years, as they've grown up, I guess, alongside me, the pieces that that they're willing to wear and enjoy wearing become more exciting and interesting as well. You touched on something earlier that I think is is insightful is that you know you want people to buy less things you'll advise them to buy less things and really treasure treasure that. So does that make it more accessible because I, I I guess having a very high price point is important because you can pay your craftspeople properly um, you can pay the right amount for the materials and the stones but it probably troubles you somewhat as well but is that idea of owning less things for a lifetime actually makes it accessible because most people can save up for something that has utility and they love over a lifetime I mean I, I definitely have a conscious I'm definitely aware of you know of saving to buy something and of it being important to you but that I don't want everything to be just so crazy expensive for the sake of that at all you know that that there should be able to be pieces that really that are well made and have value because of the care and attention and trials that have been gone into making it well but it's not just expensive it's it can be it can be simple and well made and have value from 
its design and its care without having to end up expensive. Talking again of your clients and customers, what do you notice in terms of the newer, younger client, what they're looking for compared to perhaps someone more in their 60s or 70s? I mean, it's difficult for me to say because the people that come to me are all interested in design. Otherwise, you wouldn't come to me. You'd go to a more generic shop. So I can be a bit skewed in that answer, but I definitely see a willingness to be very experimental in sort of the the younger clients and not following patterns. But then again, I, I say that and some of my older clients wear pieces that would really surprise you. I, I don't think there's a great generalization across apart from, and maybe it's me steering it, it's me going, yeah. well, you don't want that, you know, <laughs> quite bluntly. And I have found because I've done it nearly 30 years, I don't mince my words. I'm more and more honest. People respond well to that. Yeah, they do. They love it. Yes, because, I, you know, I think they want me to say, and they can agree or not agree, but they want to feel like you're giving them honest, you're explaining why you think something. Given there's, there is more demand than you can service, there's more people who, who want to buy with you. You could double the size of your business in terms of volume if you wanted to and still have people buy. Where do you... You're still a businesswoman. You still have to earn a living from this. Where do you balance that trade-off between growing the business volume or keeping it super small and exclusive, um, um, or not super small, but smaller volumes? Yes, that's definitely kind of because there is only one of me and I like to design so much and there is only so much time. I find on the whole that naturally through communication that sort of works its way out because you sort of can say to people, listen, I don't really think what you're after is worth making one of a kind for, or you can say, listen, what you want, you can go and get there. It's about communication. You know, it's saying to people, listen, if we really want to sit down and make lots of models and make something, then there's a price point to that. Is that what you're really after? I think once you explain to people and communicate clearly, there's always something that's resolved within it. Sometimes it takes quite a long time to make a bespoke piece. Sometimes even it comes down to as as simple as that, to say, it's going to take me six or seven months. Are you prepared for that? I like things to take time. They're always way better. But not everybody likes things to take time. And then I think everything you've said so far for us, we talk a lot about luxury and how we define luxury. And for us, that is nothing to do with the old connotations of sort of grotesque consumption or or mass volume and it's much more about you know a category leading product or service that is you know at the pinnacle of what it what it does it's inspiring and ethical and and all of that when you're talking about basically not selling out I always think of um the guy who started green and blacks you know it's the soil association they did the first organic chocolate he created this amazing product that people loved in the 90s and then Cadbury's came along after five years and bought it I think he then went on to do other great businesses but I think he regretted that and it's thinking for the long term and not not selling out but also your day-to-day life you know I think we've always you know we are products at our age of products of bigger better more 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 and the amount of people who say to me or oh, when you're going to open the next shop or when you're going to you know, expand. And I'm always like, no, uh, my more is greater. My day, I need to spend designing. That's what I do it for. I, I don't want my day to be spent looking at spreadsheets or making calls. You know, I, I, I'm happy doing meetings with people because that that's fascinating. And that pushes me 
to think about drawing in a different mm. way or stones or designs. But my day, I want to draw every day. So I have to think how I run it to draw every day. We have to think about what we want. And more stores means sitting behind meetings and spreadsheets and accounts. And it's not the bit that I'm good at or enjoy. I, I really agree. I mean, I think that the context of what I think this generation beneath us have learned is that um, more and more GDP growth and all of that equating to happiness or, or progress is changing. And that's the great cultural change that's happening. Um, is that what you've described in your working life or what we think the sort of best luxury brands exhibit, which is fewer items of high value, treasure them for a lifetime, is the kind of model for the world. Uh, And the younger generation are caught onto that. Our parents' generation definitely didn't. And we're somewhere in between probably. (laughs) 100%. And there's a luxury in, in the contentment of having one thing and doing it very, very well. And I guess that is the luxury of, you know, we are in a position where we are, you know, how it's not to say it's an easy work, you know, there's a lot of hours, there's a lot of looking after people, there's a lot of time, but at the same time being, if you can, conscious of what you're doing each day, conscious of its impact into the world, the people you're looking up, you know, I enjoy the act of creation, the people I employ enjoy the act of creation, I try to Uh, surround myself with people from all different backgrounds because we bring more unique perspective to creation and because that's what we all get a buzz out of and from that it will attract people who also get a buzz out of it in terms of clientele. So I guess the question just following on that is it do, do you consider Ming a luxury brand? I do consider it a luxury brand because because gemstones are a luxury so that it comes down to that base thing that the gemstones are formed over millions of years there aren't tons of them in the world and we have to honor them and we have to honor that the earth kind of in a hippie way gives them to us and we have to make it the best piece we can make for that gemstone like a home for it in the process of making these pieces which would be interesting to hear how that happens how do you balance innovation because i imagine technologies have come along in the last 20, 30 years and made your life easier with the need to stay traditional and pure to the kind of handmade craft elements of it? I love handmade. I I really love it. Like, I think if you pick up a piece and it's been made by hand, it runs through my arms. You know, if I go to the museum and I see all these ancient, ancient pieces that have been made by hand, to me, I, I can't not react to it. it it's sort of something that makes us human and it makes us there's magic in things that somebody has sat down with their hands and their heart and created even if I'm using very modern technology like 3d printing and things like that I'll only really do it to explore a shape that I then try and then make it by hand because I want that magic in it but technology is taking us really exciting places particularly for me laser because you know you can work very close to stones without them exploding, which in the old days you really couldn't do. Everything would be riveted together, whereas now we can laser it together without that heat spreading. It comes down to really kind of technical things. Um, And so there's so much kind of exciting things that I can do now with that. That for me at the moment is, is the kind of innovation in the industry that I find very exciting. But that's not to knock 3D printing. I just think that if I was to say that there's one kind of sadness about the craft, it's people thinking that something like 3D printing takes away the need for handmade because 
you can ask anybody, anybody who has no experience of jewellery at all, if you put something that's handmade in front of them and something that's printed, they will respond differently. They just will respond differently. It has some magic in it if it's been made by hand. But I guess it kind of sweeps back to me first training in India. And, you know, if we didn't have something like a certain tool, they'd say, make it. And I love that. I, they didn't go, oh, go down to the shop. They'd say, make the tool. It's sort of what makes us human, isn't it? The ability to, to make things with our hands. So Ming, just um, zooming out a bit, over the next 10 years, where do you see Ming? What's next for, for Ming in that 10 years? Well, I've never really had a kind of long-term plan like that. So if I was to say, what's, what do I see? I see better designs constructed more interestingly. It's, you know... I. So you, you don't think you've re- yet reached your peak? No, no way! <laughs> You're not there? No! there's no way I've reached my peak like every piece is the the best piece I've possibly ever made I really I get so excited and then as soon as it's made that I can do better and then it's the next piece so I hope in 10 years time it's just what I'm doing but better even yeah I think that's a trait of the best is that they don't think they're anywhere near their best there's no way I am I've got another question which is a random one do you think the Kohinoor diamond should be returned to India It's a really interesting question, and I like it. You know, it's a Golconda diamond, which is like these magical diamonds that, and in a way, it's so, it's such an identifiable stone from an identifiable time that represents so much. It would be lovely if it was in India because of the associations. It would be lovely for me culturally if it was in India. Whether it should be is a different question. Because once you start saying that any gems from a certain place should be returned, I kind of like the idea of gems being far more global and the stories of where gems travel to and they've always traveled to. You know, even when people traded shells or beads, you find them or pearls in different countries. So things being returned is complicated with gems because... Their walk around the earth is always very interesting to me, and they should walk around the earth. But I do like the idea of such a culturally representative diamond being where it represents. I, I agree. And for, for me, it's a question, which goes first, the Elgin marbles or the Kohinoor? I suspect the Elgin marbles, but but they'll both end up one day back where they came came from. Rightly so. But it doesn't mean that every gemstone should start returning to where they're from. Yeah, yeah, definitely. As an outro, we always ask people the same four questions. So I'm going to put you in the hot seat. And the first one is, so what most irritates you about your industry? The, the craft of handmade, that the skills and the traditions of handmade feel like they're dying out. It takes a very long time to train to be a high goldsmith. And I think that people are not taking on apprentices and that they're not having enough time to develop the skills. And a lot of brands are going to 3D printing or machining and trying to cut out the number of labor involved. Obviously, they need to to be more successful with the high price of gold and gemstones. But it's really sad that there aren't more highly skilled and trained craftsmen out there. Are you talking about in places like Jaipur in India or um, here in Europe? Here in Europe, but it will extend to Jaipur in India. 
you know, as people become more and more reliant on machinery, you lose the traditional. And it's really, really important that those traditional skills are maintained and taught. Brilliant. And then what most concerns you about the world we're leaving the next generation? I would say mass consumerism. I'd say removal from nature, separation from nature, Mm -hmm. um, and a reliance on screens and a reliance on technology, all of which are fantastic, but used in the right way, which is sort of dials back to what I just answered about things being handmade you know, you need to use machinery and technology, but you must do it in a way that stays human. And it's the same in the world around me that we need to respect nature, we need to respect and work for solutions within it rather than just going to technology and more machines. Yeah. And then if you had to give up your job tomorrow, Ming, what would you do? I'd be a sculptor. Right. <laughs> I'd be a sculptor because I think it's quite close. I couldn't not make in a way, a lot of jewellery is miniature sculpture. And so I think I'd be a sculptor. And if I couldn't do that, probably gardener. Yeah, okay. There's a theme there, though. Yes. things with your hands. But, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the final question. Um, we, we like to leave it on a high note. Um, what's the most exciting thing for you in the next five years, you personally? I think that it's my team at the moment. I have the most fantastic team. It's taken me a long time and you're only as good as your team and the people who support you and are around you. And I couldn't speak more highly of them and be more inspired by them. And I've got some of the most amazing goldsmiths with magical hands around me and, you know, an amazing paper artist who makes up models and they're coming together of of that team behind me together with the freedom I'm starting to have to really be experimental in my design because everything you do you want to be experimental but at the same time you do have to be mindful of wages and things like that but it's, there's a freedom in that bit of success that allows you to really be true to the art form. Amazing answer. Ming, thanks so much for your time today. We've got a lot of clients and people on the network in the sector around it. You've really been illuminating and there's a certain purity to what you do that everyone can learn from who's associated with the jewellery industry. Well, thank you, Fred. That's extremely kind of you. Thank you. No, thanks for your time. That was, that was great. And we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. This has been What The Lux. You can find us on socials at Matter of Form and drop us any questions or comments on Twitter using the hashtag WhatTheLux. And if you're a luxury brand looking for strategy or design that goes beyond the banal, get in touch via hello at matchreform.com and chat to one of our consultants. And so, until next time. <laughs>